Welcome to A Listening Life, the podcast for coaches who are finding it really hard work to build a sustainable, profitable business full of clients. I'm Ali King-Smith, sharing inspiration, stories and lessons learned from some of my successful peers and colleagues who've managed to crack the code and break through. My conversation today is with Toby Milden, founder and director of Milden, a boutique diversity and inclusion consultancy. I went in, in kind of exploratory and discovery mode. I had no agenda other than to understand what my potential clients were struggling with so that I could start to think about what solutions I might be able to help with. Good selling is just good coaching. If you have a sales meeting, it's about spending 80% of your time listening to the really good questions that you ask your prospective client for them to explain. A Listening Life is a business dedicated to helping coaches who are tired of trying to grow their business into something that makes them happy and brings in the money. Podcasts, events, mentoring and courses. Find us on Instagram at A Listening Life and through the website listening-life.co.uk. My conversation today is with Toby Milden. I heard about Toby some years ago when he was working to keep more women in tech at the BBC. He moved then to Deloitte and then out to the world of freelance as what he now calls a diversity and inclusion architect. What a privilege to hear him tell his story as someone who was born with a disability, overcoming what he describes as psychological complications in giving up a huge job that he'd got against the norms and expectations of society, where people with a disability are not expected to succeed. So if you have succeeded in getting that big job, in that big brand, how dare you step out of it carelessly into freelancing? So interesting. This is me, Ali King-Smith, talking to Toby Milden online in July 2022. I hope it's really, really helpful to you as you work out the puzzle of building a listening life that pays the bills. Let's get started then by taking you back to a moment you can remember. So I knew, I think I saw you first at the BBC and then Deloitte, I could see you were there, and then you went solo. And then there was a moment when you must have thought, I can pay my mortgage with this if you have a mortgage I can make this work well take me back to then and what was going on at that stage so it was real so a couple of things happened for me when I was working in the city and thinking about um you know setting up my own consultancy practice being kind of the risk averse person that I am (laughs) I felt like I could only do that if I had built up a bit of a financial safety net which I had managed to do because I was on a good good salary within you know within the city and that was fairly straightforward for me to to do so I knew that if I didn't bring any income in my new business and if I was really careful with my spending I could live without any income for 12 months and I felt that that was something that I could that I could live with um I had a business mentor who said to me that when your business reaches the VAT threshold, which I think is about £80,000, that is a sign that you have got a viable business. And that gave me some confidence that I I was operating a viable business because I I had hit that threshold fairly early on in my new business. Amazing. So there'll be loads of people listening to this podcast thinking, oh, I dream of hitting the VAT threshold. It would be, you know, it feels miles away. So Great to capture your story of of going from employed to 
to hitting the VAT threshold and that's a big moment and interesting you're you're now not working purely as a coach coach so you have a consultancy specialist consultancy and I, I think there's loads for us to learn in that in the you know how to really ramp that up because you did do coaching first didn't you is that is that right yeah I did I trained to be a coach when I was working at the BBC uh, we had a course that was run internally at the BBC called Coaching Skills for Managers. And I was a agile project manager. And when you're working as an agile project manager, there is very much like a a coaching style Mm. to managing projects and managing teams. So that was my introduction. And I just loved coaching. I thought it was brilliant. Um, Then I just went on and did my own self-funded diploma. Um, And I initially I kind of dabbled with working as a independent coach mm-hmm. I had a couple of personal clients not enough to to live off but initially you know I really enjoying working in the coaching space I wanted to be a full-time coach and turn it into a business but I had a bit of a false start but now I run my own diversity and inclusion consultancy I use a lot of those coaching skills in the way that I work and the way that I work with clients now anyway. Nice. So you do it with a coaching approach through and through. Yeah. So that's really intriguing to go from all of that that you've said I've heard. I had a false start as a coach. I've heard there was a business mentor. There was a kind of, it's like there was a key turn of aha to something. Can you tell us a bit more about that? What were your steps in all this? Yeah, so when I first trained to be a coach, um, I... I initially belonged to various communities helping coaches become successful Mm. and run successful practices. And I think I just got so caught up in a lot of the the spin. You know, there was a lot of talk about do you niche or don't you niche or what's your niche or Mm. how do you become a six-figure coach? And it it was all really, I don't know, it never really sat well with me. It was all a bit cheesy. and I mean, at the time I was still working at the BBC, um, I managed to reduce my hours at the BBC down to four days a week. And then the idea was that one day a week I would take on coaching clients. And I did. And I took on a, co- a couple of corporate coaching clients, which for me seemed to be quite a good fit because A, I had loads of sort of corporate experience of working in big companies like the BBC mm-hmm. and Accenture and British Airways and such like so I knew how people operated within corporates and I knew how to kind of talk to corporates in terms of you know like going through the procurement procedures and how do they buy yeah yeah but I think I just felt I got to a point where I was just like can I do this full time and I I just didn't think I I could and then something else happened at that time I I moved from being a project manager in technology at the BBC to working on diversity and inclusion. Initially, I took on a project as a project manager to get more women into technology right. because, um, you know, within our technology department, only 14% of our team were, were women, wow. whereas the BBC had a 50-50 gender split. Mm. Um, and then I, I mean, I quickly realised that actually I wanted to work within the diversity and inclusion space rather than be a... Um, you know, quote unquote, executive coach, sure, uh, freelancing. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like there was some finding of purpose, finding of specialty there. I think that's a really interesting differentiation between niching and specialising. 
reputation and confidence they're also wrapped up together but because interesting that you found the niche conversation uncomfortable and yet you look as if you've absolutely stepped into your core purposeful niche yeah. now and it's it's working so yeah I mean ironically I, I I've 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 ended up in my niche mm. which is diversity and inclusion yeah. um, and I had some interesting conversations when I first started my consultancy business my diversity and inclusion consultancy but also when I was starting off as a coach around niching and I think the most useful conversation that I had with somebody was that niching is basically like the handle on the mug it's give somebody something to hang on to so that they understand like what you're all about nice and like within the mug you've got like obviously liquid which which represents all of your knowledge and skills and competencies and experience and things like that but they need something to hang on to which is the handle Mm. which is just marketing basically you know niching is just a marketing technique so when I when I was started off as a coach first of all I suppose I kind of gravitated towards the niche of working with people who were in the media sector yeah. Um, because I had spent many years working at the BBC within that industry. Mm-hmm. So I had loads of contacts, loads of experience of how the industry worked, um, and that worked for me. When I set up my diversity and inclusion consultancy, I initially started focusing on sort of diversity and inclusion within technology right. because a lot of my experience was in within the tech sector. Mm-hmm. But so many companies approached me who are not technology clients that I've, I've actually ended up not not niching in tech. That's interesting because I my experience has been I think I've talked about it a few times now, but that uh, my experience has been as soon as you attach to a niche, the first thing that happens is someone says, "I know you normally do this stuff, but is there any chance I could persuade you out of your niche over here?" <laughs> so this thought that a niche is going to restrict your mar- your market doesn't actually happen. You, you just it not just helps you, and then just um, people come for you anyway (laughs) yeah and from what I've learned over the years niching basically helps you give a more focused message out to the world about who you work for and what you stand for yeah and there's nothing to stop somebody outside of your niche approaching you or you working with them but it's just a tool Mm. to help you position yourself and make you stand out against other other people because the coaching industry is a very crowded space yes I think for me as well clear work certainly when we were really clear about our stem biotech pharma niche it, it galvanized our what we read and what we stay current with and you know it sort of keeps us on track all the time with because we've got pharmaceuticals in our background most of us or or at least some science attachment it just reminds you these are the exhibitions I should be at these are the people who might be interested in what we're doing it just kind of keeps serving the marketing conversation all the way through it does it gives you that focus doesn't it because if you don't have that focus you could go off to all sorts of industry events you know from pharma through to agriculture yes and it's (laughs) and then and then and then you dilute your your message and you dilute what you stand for as a result Yes, because it feels overwhelming, doesn't it, when you're in practice? You, know, How do I stay current? How do I keep yeah. on track with all the coaching techniques, with all the things that are going on in all the industries? Just too many to, to master yeah. them all. I think it's a, a stroke to mastery. There's niching within niching. So, like, my niche now would be diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Um, you know, if I wanted to, to then niche further, I could kind of do it vertically or horizontally. So, vertically, 
I could say that I'm focusing on a particular industry, mm-hmm. like the media or pharmaceuticals or whatever, whatever I would like to do. Um, or you could do it horizontally, which is where I might say, well, you know, I'm focusing on a particular element of diversity and inclusion. So it could yes. be like, I'm going to specialise on the gender pay gap, or I'm going to specialise on disability, or I'm going to specialise on culture. Um, so there's there's multiple ways of cutting the pie. I saw a really great video recently. Um, Tad Hargraves is a guy I like um, on uh, YouTube. I saw him talking his business is marketing for hippies I think so he's got a really clear (laughs) niche but he says um if you're short of cash and you need to make some money immediately niche 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 so niche on your niche on you so just go really hardcore for so it would be EDNI in media in the northwest who employ women who you know keep on and on and on if you if you really want to set off quickly it takes yeah. courage to do it, I think. But it's, it's an interesting concept. And I know people who are being very successful with no niche whatsoever, but it's just an interesting way, if you're stuck, I think, to start looking at yeah. it and see how it's working. The, the flip side to doing this, actually, and it's kind of, I think you get a similar outcome to niching, is to really get really clear on who your ideal customer is. Mm. Like, the more specific, the better. So paint a picture of, like, what your ideal client is, you, where they work, what industry they work in, what business they work in, what level they're at, even personal details about what gender they are, what they, what car they drive, like the more specific you can get, because when you go out to market and you say, you know, this is the person that I work with, then you're going to start attracting those people to you because they, they look at you and they go, okay, this person gets me, you know, they've worked with people like me. And they, and they understand me. Yes, absolutely. So let me take you in a different direction now, because um, I've spoken to a few people recently who've been struggling with the start of getting going. And you, interestingly, made the transition successfully pretty quickly from job to self-employed. So there must have been a change in the cadence of your week. In the, you know, how did you? What did you do that first Monday when it was kind of okay? So it's me and my laptop. <laughs> how did you get going? Good question. Um... I can't remember what my first week was like. It was immediately after Christmas because I left my job in the city just before Christmas, took the Christmas and New Year off, and then started my business like, you know, the very beginning of January. Um, I think from memory, I had already lined up meetings. That was the top priority for me to try and get out um, and talk to as many people as possible. And I, I wanted to go to those meetings or cups of coffee with people with a very open mind. Mm. I went on in kind of exploratory and discovery mode. I had yeah. no agenda other than to understand what my potential clients who were either heads of HR or people working within the diversity and inclusion space were struggling with in their jobs so that I could start to think about what solutions I might be able to help with nice and that that was kind of priority number one for me you know I didn't really have a product per se other than me and my my experience I didn't have a website I didn't have any marketing kind of going on so that was my starting point so asking the questions first that feels really linked with what you were saying before about working out what the problems are you're trying to solve and, and who for yeah so you went exploring first and that also links back to your 
safety net of cash that you've built for yourself. So you've got some time to ask these questions before you yeah. need to earn the, the crust. Yeah, absolutely. And what about things like organising your day or getting your admin done? Or do you do anything around Mondays to do this, Fridays to do that? Or does it just all, mine's mayhem. <laughs> I'm just asking because <laughs> some people seem to have some order. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I am a really organised, structured person. Right. Yeah, like incredibly organised and structured. <laughs> and I do a very good job at managing like the tasks that I have to do, you know, making sure that things on my to-do list get sorted. I, I didn't really have any structure as such, other than, you know, my, my week is very structured, as in you know, I live out of my calendar. Right. So my tasks live in my calendar. All of my meetings live in my calendar. Um. I go through a weekly client planning process with me and my PA where I make sure that any client work that I have to do is in my calendar as a task so that, that, you know, I don't drop the ball on actually getting client work done. So, yeah, that's how I organise myself. I think also, actually, one of my main concerns was whether I would – I'm not really a morning person. (laughs) So my my biggest concern, actually, when I first started out on my own – was whether I would get up in the morning early enough to actually <laughs> take advantage of the day. Yeah. And my friend who runs his own business said, you know what, when when you don't have a regular salary coming in from a job, that is enough to motivate you to get out of bed and do yes. something and start bringing the money in. And and he's, he was absolutely right. Yes. There's that and, and also knowing that you're working on your own chosen purpose, isn't it? The motivation just comes when you've picked the work. It's not like you're doing somebody else's work that you don't want to be yeah. doing. I, I'm doing something I love, which is mm. diversity and inclusion and working with clients. And also I'm building my own business. So I'm creating something and it feels great to be creating something of my own that I'm doing for myself rather than building a business for somebody else. Yeah, for sure. I'm intrigued about some of the um, the beliefs that you held about yourself as you made the transition. Because I I carry all carry or still carry all sorts of stories from my childhood of how unsafe it is to be self employed and how risky it all is. And I have to wrestle. That's a life's work for me to kind of wrestle that to the ground. And I've been in business now. I think. 10 years nearly and uh, apparently it's working but I st- struggle to convince myself that it's not high risk all the time how did you so you put your year's worth of money to one side but as, alongside that you're describing risk averse so how did you get yourself out and start what did you need to to do um I went through my own personal journey of understanding myself so co- I, I had coaching um and psychotherapy and I think going through that process helped me understand my my fears and anxieties. But I don't know, it it was a dream of mine to run my own business for a long time. Mm. But I was always, I suppose I just stayed in the safety and comfort of working for a company and having a regular paycheck coming in. Yes. But also working for businesses that were high profile. So it felt good to work for the BBC because I never mm. had to explain to somebody who the BBC was. Everyone knows who yeah. the BBC is and and people like often look at it very admirably as well. And that was difficult to walk away from, if I'm honest, that kind of that, that kudos or that status. Yes. Um and wrapped up in that was a whole bunch of kind of psychological 
complications around like you know my identity as somebody who's got a disability that was born with a disability right that you know disabled people are very often sort of they're not, they're not encouraged to succeed they're not expected to have you know high profile jobs in high profile organizations mm. and you know i had ended up working in a high profile job in a high profile company and that was difficult to walk away from um because that was that was you know working against those assumptions that people make about people with disabilities about yeah. what they can and can't do um so i had to i really had to navigate that before i felt confident enough to say you know what i'm going to jack in my job in the city mm. and uh you know and and set up my own company oh that's amazing hearing you describe that you to to crack the thing that's supposed to be uncrackable and then say, do you know what? I'm off anyway. <laughs> I'm going to do something else. That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, congratulations on making the step. It's awesome. I've loved watching you um, develop your your brand and your certainty on LinkedIn because I hadn't actually met you until a couple of weeks ago. So it feels like you've been, I've been watching you kind of take a step this way and then, yeah, this is a sure step. I'm going to go a bit fast a bit further in that direction is yeah. that how it's felt for you that's what it's looked like from here yeah I mean, when I first set up my company I didn't have a grand plan uh, I didn't have a five-year plan a 10-year <laughs> plan or anything like that um, all I knew at the time was that I wanted to set up my own diversity and inclusion consultancy and work with multiple organizations I had no idea what I would do who I would work with what my products would be, mm-hmm. um, anything like that. And but things just evolve and develop. Yes. Um, and part of my learning has been that I, I I need to be okay with not having that plan and to just let things evolve and develop and grow. And there's been a few things along the way that have helped. I've I've had lots of coaching and mentoring, mm-hmm. which I think is really important. Yeah. Particularly when you're going from like employment to entrepreneurship and maybe and you don't have an entrepreneurial background the more coaching and mentoring you can get the better people who've been there done it Mm. learned from mistakes that can help you take shortcuts and you know avoid the same mistakes that kind of thing is really useful and then there's there's a lot around mindset as well sure so I, i read things that changed my mindset books podcasts that kind of thing it feels very smooth at the moment, what we're describing, all bells and nice smells. <laughs> so let's explore yeah. the stuff that was hard or didn't work or, you know, things that you've learned from. I'd love to hear about some of those stories. Yeah, so I'd say I haven't made any, like, major mistakes that I regret that I, I could warn people about avoiding. <laughs> you know, I've learned a lot along the way. So the thing is, when you set up your own business you have to become the head of every department Mm. so I'm the head of finance and I'm the head of marketing and I'm the head of product development and I'm the head of HR (laughs) you know all of those kinds of things I think probably what I found the most challenging and difficult in a way is like sales right I enjoy sales but equally I find it really frustrating you know, for example, you know, I've spent loads of time talking to prospective clients and writing proposals and, and, and then those like leads just go nowhere. And I just feel like that prospective client has just picked my brains for free and taken me for a bit of a ride. Um, but I, I've put myself through sales training to help me 
under, you know, navigate that mm-hmm. and be a better salesperson. Um, and that was a process of me identifying that area of development. The other thing I've learned is that it's really important to actually have a good bunch of people around you. Yeah. And like your one of your top priorities as a entrepreneur is to build a team. Now that team can be all sorts of different shapes and sizes and forms, but it is important that you actually start to build a group of people around you who are fantastic at their particular specialty that can fit into your bigger plan. And when I say team, you know, my team is that now I've got a employee mm-hmm. who's on my team, like full time. I've got a freelance PA who does sort of part-time hours for me during the week. I've got a collection of various freelancers who I can call on when needed. So yeah, I've got a graphic designer, a videographer, a writer, that kind of thing. And the thing is, I've picked them because they are amazing at what they do, all of them. And I need their particular skill to help the bigger picture of my, my business. Yes. We've just had a picnic, actually, at Clearworks, where um, I have an employee in the business and then a a very valued, long-standing freelance team. Um, And it took me a while to register that people actually want to behave as a team, even when they're freelance. They want to gather. It's nice to go out to play together. So we've just had this lovely afternoon, as as we would if if we were in employment. And quite often when people say they're lonely in self-employment, I just think there are steps you could probably take to to reach out to people that would like to gather they'd like like to be a team so forming teams that are not real teams is part of the the joy of it exactly virtual teams and ironically like obviously we 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 both operate small businesses and we rely on freelancers and such like to get our business moving Mm -hmm. but so many large organizations are now operating virtual teams because of the you know the pandemic yes and there's loads of people who are working from home all week who are isolated physically from their team. Yeah. And a lot of my clients admit that, that, you know, they're really having to think about how they have that team spirit mm. going on for people who are working remotely. Yes, yeah, so it's a shared pain now. It's not a freelancer pain. <laughs> Everybody's no, got it. No. We can all learn from each other. I guess it means clients are available, actually, to gather with us as well. So potentially we could yeah. be meeting with them more often. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm just going to go back to what you're describing of sales, because I think I take it for granted people understand what sales is and what marketing is and what the differences are. And one of the reasons I actually started this podcast was noticing that people are struggling with that sales and marketing and the whole area, really. When you talk about sales, what what do you mean by sales? Which bit of it is sales for you? So the biggest distinction that I made on my kind of sales training was that actually there's three parts to it there's serving selling and closing right serving is basically the marketing side of things you know it's 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 putting content out there you know educational content i i my marketing strategy is very much kind of like educational and informative content that yes. people can engage with that's kind of like what I do to just raise my profile and let people know that I exist yeah that's the that's the serving element sales I think loads of people have a misunderstanding about what sales actually is yeah. but I think it's so easy for us coaches actually because for me good selling is just good coaching right <laughs> if you have a sales meeting 
it's about spending 80% of your time listening to the really good questions that you ask your prospective client for them to explain. And there's certain questions that you want to ask in the sales conversation to help Mm. qualify whether this person is the right fit for you and your organization. So, you know, for example, you want to make sure that they've got the money to spend with you Mm. or that kind of thing. But you can spend a lot of your time just asking questions to like try and understand what their pains and problems and issues are. That's just asking really good coaching questions. Yeah, that's a lovely, um, really nice link. And I, I think I would encourage anyone listening to this who's a coach thinking I hate selling to tell themselves I am really good at selling because I'm really good at understanding, empathizing, listening, um, helping yeah. people form new thoughts. But that is sales, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> this, that is sales. This that horror sales. of sales we've all got, it's not, not a thing if we're going for the problem, if we're trying to solve problems and make solutions for people yeah my my sales coach that I worked with he's got this little mantra which is if you're explaining you're losing so if you're if you're going into a sales conversation and you're just telling somebody what you do and explaining how you work yeah then you're losing and obviously in the conversation obviously you know you've got it's a back and forth conversation it's not just you as the the coach asking questions and not saying anything because the client will want to know things like Mm. what are your prices or how do you work but one thing I learned is kind of have this this push and pull technique which is answer their question but then follow it up with another question yeah so if they say something like um so what are your fees then you can say well, my clients can start working with me for as little as £50 and I work one-to-one with private clients for £50,000 per annum. Um, when, when you last engaged with the coach, how much did you spend with them? Yes. You know, that's a good question for corporates in particular. Yeah, for sure. What were you imagining? What's your kind of budget that you're looking to invest? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. That's really interesting. So serving, selling, and then the last one was closing. So Closing, yeah. What did you have to develop as a skill to close? So first of all, ask for the close. Yeah. <laughs> so many people, believe it or not, don't actually ask for the close because we've got so much fear about money. Particularly, I think it's a very British thing not to talk about money. So first of all, ask for the close. And then the second thing I learned was begin with the end in mind to kind of steal what Stephen Covey would say. Mm. Um, so when you're going into a closing conversation, start with that. So just if you're on the phone with a prospective client, just say, my intention of today's conversation is to get you booked on to your coaching program. Right. I mean, the the coach that I've been working with says that um, selling is hard, closing is easy. So if you do a good job in sales, actually the close should come easy. A client shouldn't move into the closing phase unless you feel confident that you've done a good job on selling. Yes. And that they that you are a perfect match for each other. In theory, then the closing should come easy because all, basically all you're all you're doing is confirming. Yes, well, that's that's very reassuring, isn't it? That you don't try and close. I think that that the squirmy 1980s sales programs that made you close and close and, and uh, alternative closes and <laughs> assumptive closes. I think the days of that have passed, aren't they? That the relationship yeah. is tight, the consulting has happened, the questions have been asked, the client has obviously made it clear. I love this, and this would fit. And then yeah. the closing conversation is, what would, you, what would you like to do about it here? What's the timing? What's the budget? Yeah. And getting to it. Yeah. It's asking the right questions. And so one thing I learned is that um, 
and anyone who's done coaching will will immediately understand this but it's kind of avoid questions that bring no into play so a poor closing question would be um so i are you uh, you know do you feel ready to 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 go ahead with this coaching program mm. because that gives an opportunity for the prospective client to say well no actually i'm not ready i haven't spoken to my partner i haven't signed it off with the boss mm. um whereas if you ask a good co- coaching question like when do you want to get started on your coaching program we can start next week or we can start next month which works best for you right that's a better way of doing it sure i think i've i've found over the years some of it is gut feel isn't it of when when you know somebody does love it but they genuinely don't want to progress just yet for for a reason compared with someone who's yeah probably just nicking your ideas and putting it into a proposal <laughs> yes yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you get that wrong, but I think part of the journey is is getting it wrong and trying it and actually realizing nobody dies if you accidentally try and close something that's not ready to close, or you know, just sometimes it goes yeah. wrong and it's all fine as a result. Yeah, and the, and the sale the sales part of the process is to try and I weed out those objections. So make you know make sure that you are talking to the person who is the decision maker and the budget holder and make sure that there is actually a problem to be solved or a need to be filled um that there's a sense of urgency around it that they need this thing now because if there's no urgency around it they'll 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 just keep putting it off yeah i did some lovely work with a a coach mentor called chris gardner um who runs strategic mentors um and he he said really if you're if you're talking to the right person about the things that keep them awake at night and you're genuinely serving a problem there should be no issue with closing or or with providing proposals and and pitches mm. because actually you've aligned that way before you've got to that moment so i think that's reassuring for a coach that if you're listening and talking properly you, you won't make a misstep in that sense you'll be providing the solution yeah. that they're looking for absolutely yeah so a final exploration about profit and pricing and how you got your courage up to know what to charge and you know, getting started with that you had a bit of a cheat start that you'd been on the on the supplier end of the pitches I guess so you'd had some insight into what people were pitching maybe how did you know where to start with all that wow it's a bit of a minefield <laughs> um where to begin because there's different ways of looking at this so some of what I do is training that I've developed that I can just rock up to a client, deliver a two-hour workshop and leave again. That kind of thing for me is is a fixed price. Yes. And it was a bit of trial and error. I, I would be talking to a prospective client and I would say, okay, this workshop is, you know, £4,000. And they would go, oh, that's a bit that's a bit too much and I was like <laughs> okay then and 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 luckily I, I think I built the relationship with people where I could say to them okay so what you know what do you think is a a, a fairer price yeah. and they would go well we were thinking more in the three thousand pound yeah you know, range and I was like okay I'll do that training for three grand yes and that that was my initial strategy mm-hmm. so when the next customer came along and said how much is that training I'd say well it's three grand because I knew that previous client was had paid it yes um and I kind of I I I then followed this like stepping stone approach Mm -hmm. to test the market so after I'd got like five sales at three thousand pounds for a particular workshop 
I would then increase the price to three and a half thousand pounds. So the next client that yeah. would come along, I'd say, go, oh, it's three and a half grand to see if they pay it. Now you get to a point eventually where <laughs> you start to notice people are not not wanting to pay that. So yeah. you, you know you've reached your, your threshold. So that's kind of one technique I've used. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I'm looking at, into, is, this is more for like the consultancy piece of work, mm. is around value-based pricing. Mm. So creating a price for a project that represents the value that you're delivering to a client. Yeah. Now, the work that I do isn't very, it, it's quite difficult to ascertain what that value is. But initially, what you you need to kind of understand the minimum price, which is you you have to work out the cost of delivering a project, mm-hmm. and then work out what profit you want on top, and that's your price. Yes. So if I I don't know an example would be I've been working with a client to create twelve months uh, like a a bespoke twelve month inclusive leadership training program for their hundred and fifty top managers in the business yeah and I I kind of like did an initial design of training which they paid for as a kind of separate package and then when they said to me that's great you know can we actually deliver it and how much it's going to cost I then said I I then did some calculations of how much would it actually cost me to design and deliver this training for a year to the client what kind of profit do I want to make and I added that on top and that gives me my price yeah but that's also different to what the value how much the client would value because value is in the mind of the consumer Mm. not the mind of the you know the coach or the consultant yeah it's it's sometimes hard to truly believe the value as well isn't it we did some calculations around if say we ran a coaching circle for eight female leaders in science and three leaders didn't leave who were going who might have left if they were not belonging and part of this circle and when you do the sums it's so mind-blowingly high (laughs) you think I can't possibly charge that much but that genuinely is how much money this will save you if you you run this coach program so then sometimes we say so that would be a mad amount so what 20% of that what would what's a reasonable amount of that to actually charge yeah the general rule of thumb is well from what I've learned so far is somewhere between 10 and 20% Mm. and I, I can do that you know and I uh, so I can calculate, for example, the uh, attrition cost to the business of losing people because they don't feel like they belong to yes. the organisation. And when when I worked at Deloitte, the, the partner that I worked for did this calculation. We got some data out of our HR systems and we looked at the number of women leaving the firm because of work-life balance reasons. Um and the figure was astonishing. It ran into the millions every year. Wow. So whenever Emma was trying to persuade the rest of the partners to like put money into diversity and inclusion, mm-hmm. she was like, right, I've got one and a half million pounds or whatever it was. It was quite high on the table. Are we just going to leave it there? Yes. You know, or are we going to spend £20,000 on, on something that might actually prevent these women from leaving the organisation? Yeah. Um, and... And I think that gives you confidence to to understand your what price you can charge when you know what value you can give to the business. Yes. And that, that thinking is lovely for any coach to do, whether it's to an organisation or to a personal uh, client, that what is it worth for you to buy this and what's it worth for you to not buy it you know, and have the yeah. outcome of not investing in this? What would it be like for you? So you can have those conversations in a cring- cringy way, but you can also have them in a very gentle 
genuinely what would what's the pain of not taking action here and what would that be like yeah and i think it's very good yeah useful yeah. tools just before we finish we'd just love to get your final sort of summary of if you if you could give some advice some lessons learned to these coaches who are either newly qualified and thinking what the heck or they've been trying a while and finding it difficult what would you look back and say would be advice for you to pass on so I would recommend starting with what I call the business fundamentals Mm -hmm. and that is understanding who your perfect client is and what problems they're facing and really understanding that and then go on a journey of discovery to make connections with your ideal clients and think about ways in which you could solve their problems. Once you've got that understanding, there's kind of two other things that I think needs to happen. One is that you need to position yourself as an expert in the field to address that particular problem. Uh, And there's multiple ways of establishing yourself as as an expert or an authority on that particular topic. You know, one of the things that I did was that I wrote a book, Inclusive Growth, and I basically brain dumped all of my knowledge <laughs> about how to um, implement diversity and inclusion sustainably within organisations um, and published that as a book. And that is a fantastic tool for me to use to to position me as an authority or an expert that I actually know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are multiple other things out there that you can do. And then the third element is really thinking about how you can package up what you do into a product of some sort. And then that will help you with the marketing side of things, the pricing side of things. It just gives you something to to sell. Yes. Something tangible. So I think a lot of work that consultants and trainers um, and coaches do is it's not particularly tangible. Mm but you need something tangible for people to grab onto. Yes, it's a really nice way of changing a service offer into a product offer or something to buy. Yeah. Yes, yeah. we found that productizing has been really interesting to us over the last few years where actually I think sometimes when you're an expert in a field, even something particularly nebulous like coaching, you feel as if everyone understands what you're talking about. But actually when we've given something a name, like we've got one programme called Lab to Leadership, obviously taking science techies into their leadership confidence and we've been doing that for donkey's years but actually calling it that people are kind of oh I see what you're doing here (laughs) think oh I could have mentioned that before (laughs) what we're actually causing yeah because when I talk about products it's not about having like nice fancy packaging no it can be something that's like having a nice catchy name for your program Mm. having like a brochure even if it's like one or two sides of a4 just having something like a brochure or an explainer video or I don't know anything that that just makes it tangible yes um with a price attached you know like you don't go into an apple shop and go I'm really interested in that iphone how much is it and they go I'm not sure depends what you want depends what you're looking for yeah you know they're very clear on what price the iphone costs yes so yeah and and that that's kind of like the the productizing of of what you do yeah nice so this is who I am this is what you'd get. This is how I'd do it. This is how much it would cost you <laughs> to do it. And they can they can love it or yeah. ask more questions. Yeah. Or if we were to simplify it even further, it's like it's like this is who I work for and the problems I, I help those people solve. Yes. This is who I am and this is why I'm an expert to help you with those problems. And this is what I've got 
to, to solve your needs. So a big thank you to Toby Milden, smashing freelancing with style and giving us loads of food for thought about how to own your thought leadership, create products and offers that make sense to clients and having the courage to ask for the business. I'm off to order his book, Inclusive Growth. Very taken with Toby's reminder that staying curious about your clients' problems and needs is 100% a core coaching competency. So if you're uncomfortable selling, maybe tell yourself that you're asking questions that are very likely to help your client clarify and progress and move out of the sales cringe. Thank you, Toby, for taking the time to explore so many rich themes with me. Fab to hear and inspiring, I hope, to anyone else building a listening life. My huge thanks to producer Steve Folland and to Lauren Hills at HQ. A Listening Life is a business dedicated to helping coaches who are tired of trying to grow their business into something that makes them happy and brings in the money. Podcasts, events, mentoring and courses. Find us on Instagram at A Listening Life and through the website listening-life.co.uk. 